is Annika in Columbia and Maria in Happy Valley. And welcome to the second season of the City of Subdued podcast, Bad Town. So Maria, before we dive into this week's episode of Bad Town, what kind of hot goss do you have? I feel like we have to address the election because it's pretty much all anyone can talk about that I know of. So I want to thank everybody in Whatcom County who voted to help bring change to our country. Big congratulations. There wasn't too much exciting on the Bellingham specific ballot, but it seems like our trusty mainstay, Rick Larson, will continue as our representative. And actually, I'm pretty excited about that one. I don't know if it was a proposition, but it was like the comprehensive sex education Mm -hmm. law. And I think that's going to pass. So I think that's great. The more children can learn about their bodies and being responsible, the better choices they'll make as they get older. And it's all age appropriate. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's I think it'll be good. Hopefully, 2021 will be a year where we can fix a lot of problems. Progress, people. Speaking of progress, as we are progressing into our winter and fall season, I'm noticing on Instagram that so many places have these amazing looking drink and food specials. There's also a lot of more people's um, spaces, their outdoor spaces are becoming much more cozy while still allowing airflow. I was feeling really apprehensive about COVID and our restaurant scene in the winter. But the more I see and the more creative these places are getting, the more hopeful I am that all of our wonderful local businesses will be able to carry through until we have a vaccine and can go out safely. Mm-hmm. Well, don't forget to check out our Patreon. Remember, we're at patreon.com slash city of subdued podcast. The link will also be on our social media. And we only have one recording up so far. Our Bad Town tour of Bayview Cemetery led by our fabulous Good Time Girls. We will be adding more content, though, and it's going to be really funny. Oh, yes. Great content. As we get more patrons, because we have zero. You could be the first one. (laughs) The first patron gets a shout out. We could probably even do like the first 50 patrons get shout outs. So Annika, what are we learning about this week? This week's episode is unofficially titled The Baddest Bitches of Bad Town, where we will be discussing the plights of our city's baddest ladies in prison. Ooh, sort of like an orange is the new black sort of thing. Yeah. I never watched that show. So Me I don't neither. Know. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's coming right up on this week's episode of Bad Town. Welcome to Bad Town, where we discuss the darkest and the baddest parts of Bellingham and Whatcom County history. We are joined today, as always, by our season two co-hosts, Colby Labrie. Howdy do. And Ren Urbekite. Oh, hello. From the Good Time Girls. So what story are you telling me about today? Today's episode, we have deemed female trouble. And um, basically, uh, we're going to sum that up as the baddest bitches in bad town. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you liked that. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, alliteration. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> anyway, female trouble. And it's interesting because it sometimes feels like we end up with less stories about women or they just have less details or it's harder to find press. It seems like we end up with tons and tons of stories about crimes committed by men. And, you know, so we have all these bad boys of bad town and the women's stories can sometimes kind of feel lost or drowned out. So we kind of wanted to highlight some of our favorite ladies. And um, yeah, we know there are sexual differences and gender differences in rates of likelihood of committing crimes, of types of crimes committed, even being victims of crimes. And there's a lot of debate as to what the reasons are for these sociological theories, biological, sociobiological. It's complicated, right? And probably a little of all the above. It gets a little depressing telling stories in which women are the victims of crime, which seems to be incredibly repetitive. But I, I argue that you could also say that um, in some of our stories where they are so-called criminals or perpetrators of crime, they're actually victims as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess just before we start, Colby and I both wanted to just acknowledge we're talking about female female trouble here, and um, but we want to make sure that we acknowledge that we fully believe in the fluidity of gender and that the word female can be used to identify with more than just your reproductive organs. But it's worth reminding folks that during this time, the time periods and the places, the stories we are telling are set, the whole culture was much more rigidly divided by biological sex and or your public presentation of gender. There were sometimes you could pass, um, but for those who could, but it was rare. Um, it was still within a really very binary system of gender that was perpetuated by these Europeans and Euro-American colonizers. So with that, I guess we should also acknowledge the history we are discussing is largely um, Euro-American. Um, and the immigrants and colonizers who came to this area in the very recent past, with the first so-called settlers to the area arriving about 170-ish years ago. Um, and that's compared to the Coast Salish tribes and the other tribal groups and their ancestors, like the Lummi Nation and the Nooksacks, who lived on this land for 10,000 plus years before those so-called settlers um, brought their Euro-American problems and crimes. But when they did, like we said, a lot of men were uh, in the press about that, but women had their role to play in that too. Saying, oh, yes, they did. <laughs> they did. Yes, yes. Those Euro-Americans, they brought plenty of their Euro-American problems. <laughs> Untold amounts. Mm -hmm. So I guess, I don't know, you guys ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. All right. So one of the earliest crimes committed here by those Euro-American settlers um, was one that was pretty sensational in the area at the time. And um, I don't think just for its time, but even now, I think it's pretty dramatic. But it occurred in 1880, so pretty early on in, in the days of old Bellingham. Um, and that's the story of Mrs. Susan Clark. And she was sentenced for the murder of Michael Padden whose name you might recognize, Lake Padden. That is um, for whom Lake Padden is named. And he was shot. He was actually a foreman of the Seahome coal mine. And he was actually shot by Susan's 10-year-old son, Thomas Clark Jr. Um, and it was reportedly at her insistence. So mom told the son to head on down there with a shotgun. Um, so apparently the two, the, these families had been feuding over this property survey. And Susan was pretty pissed off because she thought that Mr. Padden was kind of cheating them on some of their land. And there had been this dispute over it. And 
finally, Padden was down there building a fence um, on what he thought was his land, and Mrs. Clark sent her son down to to shoot him. Um, eventually, Mrs. Clark was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to five years in the pen. But before she could serve that time, she hung herself in her cell. Luckily, the son, um, the case was dismissed against him. But really just a tragic and sad story really early on. Damn. What was it like if a woman got arrested and sent to jail or was sent to prison? Yeah, it honestly, it seems there wasn't really any kind of system set up specifically to handle women prisoners in any organized way across the board from little small city and county jails to territorial and state prisons. Just because there weren't as many women committing crimes, there wasn't as many women there Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the first place. There was a much smaller population. It was very heavily weighted on the male and so you had McNeil Island, uh, which opened in 1875. That f- was a federal penitentiary. Mm-hmm. And now that's some kind of special correction facility for sexual predators. Weirdly, they just uh, abandoned the old prison. Uh, I think it might be the creepiest island on earth. I was just reading about it, so I got kind of intrigued. <laughs> My parents, you can you can see it from like their house. Really? Almost. You have to walk a little ways because they're not. Yeah. But yeah, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, like, it must be they must not just let anybody go there. So, yeah, it looks like you could swim across, though. I mean, people must have some people escaped. It was kind of like Alcatraz being on an island and everything. Anyway, Susan Clark, though, (laughs) wasn't sent there. She was sent to Seattle, which is in the town that's now called Bucoda, Washington. And they had built an early for-profit prison there, um, and it had no accommodations for women, of course. And so they had to put her, they basically, like, made a makeshift spot for her in the shoe-slash-tailor shop-slash-hospital. <laughs> and this prison was notorious, like, it was the conditions there that created a public demand for a state prison. It was referred to as hell on earth. Back in those days, and uh, the town of Seattle actually changed their name because of the horrible reputation of the prison. And the word Seattle is actually supposed to be a native word meaning haunted place or devil place. Hell yeah! I know. I was immediately like, okay, road trip. Go there <laughs> too. Although I guess nothing's left of the prison. And then you got Walla Walla State Pen, which opened in 1886, which was three years before Washington became a state. Um, that was also still is technically a men's prison and i love some of its nicknames including the walls and concrete mama (laughs) 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 i learned there are currently 12 adult prisons in washington state and only two of those are for women and that there were no all women's prisons prior to 1970 so up till that time you just they were just making it up and whatever they were always just coming up with some makeshift thing. And at local levels it was the same exact thing. You had really a wide variety of like county and city jails and none were equipped for women. I can't really speak for all of them, but definitely in the early days of Bellingham and the towns on the bay, um again it was just no accommodation for women cuz not many were getting arrested, outnumbered by men. And things like prostitution were tolerated and legally sanctioned. So no one was getting arrested for that. Um, (laughs) And then there were, you know, the occasional murder manslaughter cases like Susan Clark. um, And a lot of those stemmed from domestic violence situations. Mm -hmm. But anyway, jails were pretty much 
totally makeshift. They even used repurposed weird buildings and structures for male prisoners. You would often hear jails referred to as the calaboose. And even they're like labeled that on on old maps like, of the town. <laughs> like, here's the calaboose, which is so Wild Westy. It's some like some kind of bastardization of some Spanish term meaning jail or something. <laughs> so what do we know about early Bellingham jails? Um, Well, like Colby said, these early jails were super makeshift. In fact, Fairhaven used an abandoned old boat hole or a barge as a jail, which they jokingly called the Hotel de McGinty. And um, depressingly, they named it after a man who had drowned himself after losing at poker. Depressingly or perfectly. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. They're like, this one's for you, old McGinney. <laughs> <laughs> Pour one out for McGinty. <laughs> In the jail. <laughs> oh, now it is depressing. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm glad you guys have come around on that. Yeah. <laughs> so... For a time, the, the, the jail jail in the city of Bellingham was in the basement of the Territorial Courthouse building on E Street, that old brick building. But during the boom years of the 1890s, the town of New Whatcom commissioned the new city hall on Prospect Street um, in an attempt to look fancier than their rival town of Fairhaven. So the basement of that building was to be the new city jail. And Everybody, I hope, knows what we're talking about here when we say that the old city hall, the big, giant, fancy red building. So anyway, when New Whatcom and Fairhaven grew together and united as Bellingham in 1903, there was a population boom. And as the town grew, so did the population of criminals. And it didn't take long for the new Bellingham City Jail to become crowded and disgusting and dirty. In the winter months, it was reported that 25 to 40 men would be crammed into this space, which was meant for four to six men. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, smells lovely. Uh-huh. Yeah, that smells real good down there. Oh, God. Um, so there was, speaking of women, there was a solitary cell. Um, which they used for those random women prisoners. Um, And it was described as a very small room with one filthy mattress lacking in ventilation. No. Um, So eventually the conditions were so bad that a judge refused to sentence any women to the jail, calling it not fit for human habitation. (laughs) Sorry, dudes. You don't count. (laughs) Just lowly criminals. Yeah. Just vermin. Uh, Yeah, so women were constantly just being released uh, because they really just didn't have anywhere to put them. But in 1907, they moved the judge's quarters upstairs and created a makeshift kind of women's ward in his old rooms. But because it had standard walls, where the rest of the jail had brick or stone, uh, the police chief really worried that, quote, an irate woman armed with a bedpost could easily smash her way out of jail. (laughs) He's not wrong. (laughs) Show me the lie. (laughs) Although, actually, I have no record. I've never found any records of a woman breaking out of jail, except for when they just walked out. So somehow they could get away with just being like, yeah, I'm just going to go out here for a minute. Bye. But no, like, you know, chiseling out or anything like that. Got it. Smashing out with bedposts. I wish. Sounds like they didn't have to. Yeah. But so after whiskey bottles were found down there in the women's ward in about 1909, the jailers kind of lamented the need to put heavy screens over the barred windows. 
So there were apparently bars, but nothing stopping someone from the outside handing stuff in through the outside of the jail. (laughs) So good. I know. I'm like, were the windows just open? God, that'd be freezing. Lord. No, thank you. So, yeah, it was also a concern, again, due to potential breaks at breakouts. Um, and then there's another fun quote. A woman handy with a hammer and saw, both of which could be smuggled in through the windows, would have no trouble in demolishing the side of the jail wall and making her escape. <laughs> <laughs> they were really concerned about these, like, crazy ladies. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, they just walked out the front door. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we, we do have a story that we're going to tell you later about a woman who was arrested for attempting to aid men in breaking out of a jail. But before we get to that, we want to talk about the police matrons. Oh, the police matrons. That's so matronly. <laughs> I know, right? I had to look up what exactly is the de- definition of matron. And it basically is either a married, mature or elderly woman or B, a woman in charge of children or other women, such as at a boarding school or a woman's jail. (laughs) So, yeah, you had to be, you know, matronly. Basically, it was considered, you know, untoward to have male policemen handling women prisoners. It was actually created by the demands of women and women's groups who lobbied for this and to have women on the department to handle women prisoners. The men had no problem (laughs) with the system. So if we recall, we've probably talked about this before, that in 1909, a group of prominent men formed the Municipal League with the goal of cleaning up the town. At this time period, there was also groups like the Women's Christian Temperance Union and others who were really concerned with like getting rid of all the Wild West vice. And it was that environment in which a woman named Miss Ella Belia... (laughs) Ella Bellia. I love that. Um, She petitioned the city to create the position on the police force. And she had been working with the newly organized YWCA, and she had um, made it her mission to intercept young women arriving at the train station to make sure they didn't fall into the wrong line of employment or the wrong rooming house. A legitimate concern, given the red light district was directly across the tracks from the station. But the city agreed to create the position. Um, However, no one else applied. And so therefore, Ella Bellia became the first woman to fill the position. Um, (laughs) I don't know why I keep thinking of like House Bunny, (laughs) even though it's not House Bunny. (laughs) That's what I keep thinking of. I don't think it was that much fun. (laughs) No, I don't think it was either at all. (laughs) Yeah, it clearly wasn't that much fun. so all those like moral crusaders were agitating and the city was convinced to close down the red light district. And right around that same time, the um, local option law was passed. And so essentially in 1910, Bellingham, you know, got rid of the brothels, got rid of the booze all at one time. And the police suddenly had their hands full to overflowing <laughs> with criminals of all sexes and sorts because you've just criminalized a very large proportion of your population. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So women were suddenly being arrested in much larger numbers, mostly for liquor violations. And Ella Bellia, she she only stayed around for about a year before she left for the East Coast to be um, an orphanage superintendent, because that's way more fun. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Ella. Ella Bellia. It feels like... um... To me, it like reminds me of Mrs. Pigglewiggle or something. I know, or Amelia Bedelia. Amelia Bedelia, yes. <laughs> um, so, but to re- they replaced Ella Bellia 
I can't even say it. It's like a tongue twister. <laughs> they replaced her with Miss Edith Fuller. And she was a former kindergarten teacher who lived with her age mother, her aged mother, I should say. No sooner had Edith been hired than the city of Bellingham declared the need for budget cutbacks and this matron position was on the line. Um, And the city was having a really hard time, as we said, adjusting to this enormous loss of revenue from saloon licenses and the fees paid by the working girls in the red light district. So along with the need to increase policing and jailing of these new criminalized populations, they're dealing with a huge loss in revenue. So women's groups such as the YWCA demanded the retention of this matron position. Um, However, Edith left on her own after she was offered a better paying job by the Yakima Police Department. Um, But the Bellingham Police Department declared that they had no inclination to hire a replacement matron since they had already had two men on voluntary leave of absence. So, yeah, it's just getting worse. And police chief McFadden lamented the conditions of the overly taxed jail, saying, quote, the city jail contains more prisoners than the laws of man ever intended it to accommodate. Bugs are rampant. The female quarters are punk. The prisoners cannot take a bath unless Fire Chief Marsh souses them with the gasoline driven joy wagon or a fire engine. (laughs) Or unless they're tied to a rope and keel hauled from the outmost point of the sea home dock. Oh my God. <laughs> ah, I just cannot just throw somebody into the old bay. <laughs> this article sounds like somebody's like drunk uncle at dinner. <laughs> I'm sorry. I would be happy just not to take a bath. If, the, if those were my options. <laughs> I'll just smell. I'm good. Just smelling. I like the flies. It's protein. Oh, you say that now, but on day like 12, you're going to be looking for anyone to throw you off the sea home dock. <laughs> I rope my ankle and throw me in. <laughs> or hose me down with the fire hose. <laughs> so again... After all this, the the women's groups um, voiced their demands for a police matron again, and the city soon finally persuaded Edith Fuller to come back and resume the job, and they were going to offer her some better pay. Um, But Edith's job not only involved dealing with these female prisoners, she was also this protective officer and expected to keep young women out of trouble in the first place. So Edith continued Ella Bellia's efforts at intercepting women at the train station, as well as inspecting these theaters and dance halls for any hanky-panky or lewd um, movie pictures. (laughs) Um, So Edith's initial assessment of the situation in Bellingham, her first little foray into the lives of the young women in Bellingham, produced um, some dire uh, results that she posted in the Herald. And she said that 50% of girls were, quote, deceiving their mothers. Oh, she just made that statistic up. (laughs) She's like, half the girls in this town are sneaking around. (laughs) Parents, what are you doing? So she's basically blaming parents for for being too lax and telling them that their their girls are out there on the town. Um, Another thing Edith did when she was censoring, she needed help censoring those movie pictures we were talking about and was supposedly planning to deputize pretty girls to help quell the masher nuisance by arresting any man who paid them unwanted attentions. Okay, so what is a masher nuisance exactly? <laughs> I know, let's unpack. 
the mashers. Uh, so basically, mashers were kind of a um, a slang term for men who sexually harassed women. Oh yeah, let's let's bring this one back. I kind of like it. Right? <laughs> you did your monster mash. Halloween. So mashers was the common term used between the 1880s and the 1930s. Basically, as soon as women had the freedom to go into public and urban environment unescorted, they encountered sexual harassment from strange men. So there's a Stanford history professor, Estelle Friedman. She wrote in her 2013 book, uh, Redefining Rape, Sexual Violence in the Era of Suffrage and Segregation. And she says, quote, the revolt against the masher signaled an important transition in American women, women's public lives. It was parallel to the quest for full citizenship as voters. The call for safety to travel alone meant greater access to both labor and leisure. Women recognized that street harassment impeded their mobility and marked them as intruders on historically male space. Um, during this time, long, sharp hat pins <laughs> came into vogue. There are many, many stories of women, you know, being groped or um, harassed by these mashers and just pulling out their hat pin and stabbing them. <laughs> and their parasols. <laughs> their parasols, yeah. I love that. Weaponizing whatever they had on hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, this is making me think of one of those pop culture references where the really buff fighter dude is like, my arms are registered in eight countries. It's literally the weapons. Except instead of arms, they're like hat pins and parasols. <laughs> Chuck Norris, I'm sure. <laughs> she whips it out, does some crazy nunchuck moves. I love it. So Edith, like, she actually got some like recognition though for her protective work nationwide. Like they got inquiries about her methods, her system uh for troubled girls, which was basically like, hey, like maybe we don't throw them in the disgusting ass jail. So instead she would get girls to be cared for in the house of a Christian woman who would look after them as a mother would. And if they didn't shape up, they were quietly sent away to some good training school which you know isn't great but maybe was better than being in the jail with all the gross men so her her goal was quote to cause the girls to see the error of their ways without the publicity of a trial and in this way to lift them up to a higher plane to cause them to regain their self-respect and to live a clean and moral life <laughs> Despite all her efforts and great results, the city jail was still receiving fallen women with alarming regularity. Um, so she continued to agitate for better conditions in the jail. Uh, and in 1913, thanks to her, the women's ward got a private lavatory, which was a toilet and a sink, cold water only. The jail reported, reportedly at the time housed six women in a space designed for two. And the, there was a cement floor damp from water seepage. So she got a wooden floor installed and sleeping accommodations for three people. So she also got them a heater and some access to hot water finally, which was provided by the chief bringing it in buckets. So in 1921, budget cuts again put her position on the line. And again, ladies of the town wrote a letter to the editor and demanded, you know, that her position be retained. 
and I like this quote, It seems impossible to believe that anyone familiar with the nature and quality of our present police matron's work would favor a reduction of her meager salary. Her work necessarily is unknown to the general public, but nevertheless is highly efficient. Her beat is the entire city and her shift many times more than eight hours. She has been offered similar positions in other cities at better salaries. Yeah, she was the lowest paid position on the force. I don't know if we mentioned that, but I'm just going to repeat that again. (laughs) And she did remain on the force for five more years until she retired in 1926. She was 49 years old and she was recently married to a widower. So what happened with the women's jail after Edith left? After Edith left the city, um, they hired Mrs. Charlotte E. Strong. Um, and her name suited her. She looks like one tough broad. Um, in fact, in 1932, it was announced that she was the, quote, second best gunner on the force. <laughs> she beat out all but one officer in her marksmanship scores. So Strong takes over. And in 1932, as Prohibition wound down, the small room used as a liquor vault was made over into a padded cell. Um, Despite clearing out the booze and presumably fewer alcohol-related arrests, the jail was still squeezed for space. Um, With accommodations for 8 to 10 prisoners maximum, overflow prisoners were regularly sent to the county jail, and women who were jailed still lacked access to bathing facilities. So in 1938, WPA funds made possible the construction of the new city hall on Lottie Street with larger modern jail facilities. Um, And when the new building opened in December of 1939, the new jail had, quote, modern roomy quarters with air conditioning an inner office communication system, and an actual kitchen. There were six cells for men, two for women, two for juveniles, and one padded cell. It doesn't sound that much bigger. Honestly. No. <laughs> like really, what? Of course, the, the shiny new jail, as we said, didn't stay cushy for very long. And that overcrowding and poor conditions in the city jail have been a continuous problem over the years. And budgets never seem to be enough to improve things. Maybe mass incarceration isn't really like a great idea. And, (laughs) 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 you know, like you can never, it's just this whole system does not seem sustainable. You'll never have big enough jails. Especially if you make like stupid shit illegal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It just seems like resources, you know, put resources into things that would keep people from doing stupid crimes in the first place. Maybe I feel like better things we could divert some funding into and but it's just the way the whole thing's set up yeah i was gonna say why do that when we can make money off of them right that's the spirit (laughs) (laughs) welcome to bat town (laughs) so who are some of the, the most infamous women prisoners that we have in our bellingham history books one of my favorites is probably really probably our only quote famous or infamous Women prisoner is Emma Goldman, who is kind of a personal idol of mine. (laughs) But if you don't know who Emma Goldman is, you need to go out and get yourself down an internet rabbit hole. Stat. Okay. In December of 1908, the Bellingham Jail hosted the, quote, High Priestess of Anarchy. So Emma Goldman was a writer and lecturer on anarchist philosophy, women's rights, and social issues. Um, She dedicated her entire life to the idea of creating a radically new social order because she believed our society and economic systems were fundamentally unjust. Yeah, she was ahead of her time. 
And I just have to throw in this quote from the Jewish Women's Archives online because they said it so beautifully. Goldman's deep commitment to the ideal of absolute freedom led her to espouse a wide range of controversial causes. A fiery orator and a gifted writer, she became a passionate advocate of freedom of expression, sexual freedom and birth control, equality and independence for women, radical education, union organization, and workers' rights. Support for these ideas, many of which were unpopular with mainstream America, earned Goldman the enmity of powerful political and economic authorities, known as exceedingly dangerous and one of the two most dangerous anarchists in America. She was often harassed or arrested while lecturing and sometimes banned outright from speaking, insisting on the right to express herself in the face of overwhelming odds. Goldman became a prominent figure in the establishment of the right to freedom of speech in America. Badass in a nutshell. So she was on a speaking tour of the West uh, and was scheduled to speak at the Bellingham Theater. Again, this is 1908. Mayor D'Amato's at the time, he was not having any of it, and he ordered her to be arrested on the charge of attempting to incite a riot before she even spoke. So she was. She was arrested as soon as she showed up, and she spent the night in jail. Her bond was fixed at $5,000, which was not a small amount at the time, and she was ordered to leave the next day. Fred, do you want to start the next story about a bad girl from Bad Town? Yeah, I can do that. Um, we wanted to talk about Madame Myrtle Baker, um, which some of you might have heard of uh, on our tours. And she is one of our favorite lady criminals. Um, she was a local madam. And these women had worked their way up. These madams had worked their way up the sex work hierarchy and became property owners and business managers. And their presence was tolerated, if not encouraged in these early years as a necessary evil in a place with a population that skewed heavily on the um, dirty bachelor (laughs) male side of things. So as we mentioned before, with the pressures from groups like the Municipal League to shut down the red light district increasing, these women um, faced legal charges more and more. Um, Myrtle Baker was one of the madams who got a lot of press at this time. She ran the Melville House or Melville Cottage at the corner of D and Chestnut Streets, um, which was on pilings over the Tide Flats at the time. Um, Her first warrant of arrest that we found actually occurred in 1906 and was because Sam Lowe, whom she employed as her cook, was busted with opium and she was charged with allowing the use of dope in her house. Um, And when the when. When the Municipal League forced the town to crack down on the red light district in 1910, it appears the police actually tipped off all of the ladies in the red light district and most of the employees left town on trains. But being property holders, several of these madams remained behind, including Myrtle Baker and her rival, Eva Holman. All right. So this is from the Bellingham Herald, April 1st, 1910, which was the deadline for the closure of the red light district. And the headline read, women fold their tents and fade away. So it reads, Eva Holman and Myrtle Baker, once mistresses of a bright and popular district, now hold undisputed sway in a dark, dismal, and tenantless domain. As property owners, they stand on their rights, but they stand alone. Bowing to the inevitable, the will of the church and reform factions of the city, the former inmates of the red light district near the great northern depot have themselves solved the problem by moving out. The women of the district have gone to more lucrative fields, and the district, which in former days was gaily lighted, will tonight be all dark. It's beautiful. 
I know. According to the statements of some of the residents of the district, a police official visited them yesterday afternoon and issued a warning for all to vacate today. Who that official was and what authority he had for such action cannot be determined, as both the mayor and the chief of police state emphatically that no one carried such a message from them. However, the exodus from the district began this morning and every train out of the city carried a number of the residents. Eva Holman and Myrtle Baker, the two principal property owners in the former district, will make their homes there until such time as they are able to find more suitable dwellings. Both are big property holders in this city, and both have paid taxes here for a number of years. And while neither evince any intention of continuing her former occupation, both deny the right of anyone to drive them out of the city or away from their own property as long as they live within the letter of the law. An investigation of the district by police this afternoon brought forth a statement at the police station that the erstwhile red light district is now no more. Except, <laughs> um, or so they hoped, but Myrtle apparently kept right on with business. Um, and she was arrested again in August of that year after the municipal league heard she was keeping on, keeping on, or they went undercover and they turned her in. Got another fun um, Herald article from 1910, August. They say Myrtle Baker and Annie Wells were arrested on charge of charges of maintaining body houses. Both of the landladies seemed to have plenty of money and gave cash bonds to assure their appearance in court. The Baker woman is charged with maintaining a house of ill fame, commonly known as a body house, in the old restricted district. And the Wells woman has been living on the corner of Railroad Avenue and Chestnut Street over the cottage bar. In the early part of this year, the Municipal League demanded of the city officials that the restricted district near the Great Northern Depot be abolished and the red lights that have glared there for so many years were doused under the direction of the city police. When the women were driven from their quarters on the flats, they spread out over the city and infested the lodging houses. About two months ago, the Reform League heard reports that indicated that the conditions in the city were not yet what they should be. A committee was appointed to do some gumshoe work with the result that information was secured, which was placed in the hands of the prosecuting attorney. The filing of the information against the landladies is the result of the actions of the executive board of the Municipal League. So, yeah, the Municipal League had members volunteer <laughs> volunteer to go undercover, quote unquote, to get information on where the brothels were oper operating um, and turn that into the police. Uh, forcing arrests so brave <laughs> it's, i know it's almost like the police you know were like reluctant to do so until their hands were forced but myrtle uh she failed to appear at her trial after this whole thing and she, it was said that she was somewhere in california which is where she was from and she had family there and while she was gone her husband silas baker who's basically a town drunk and he had the keys to her brothel and was busy selling her stock of booze to all his buddies. Mm -hmm. So we have another great little Herald quote here. French Pete, notable celebrity of Old Town, sauntered out of the Melville Cottage on the flats in the old Badlands district this morning at 10 o'clock with a bottle of beer on his hip. Fell into the arms of Detectant Tom Nugent is now being held as a material witness in the city jail, along with a wagon load of beer, whiskey and champagne. <laughs> so he's charged with maintaining a nuisance and engaging in the unlawful sale of liquors. So Myrtle, upon her return, she has to face charges and then this mess on top of it, um, which she ends up taking 
the heat for. Um, and it says in the, in the article reporting on that, Myrtle Baker charged with vagrancy arranged before Judge Kellogg in Superior Court. The specific complaint against Miss Baker was that she was running a house of prostitution near the Great Northern Depot. She was also arrested for the unlawful sale of intoxicating liquor. But as she furnished her $1,000 bond and said, I will not violate that law again all year, um, they were like, okay, we won't charge you with anything. Um, <laughs> and her husband, though, who was the one who got busted selling her booze, uh, was also arraigned and he pled not guilty. And because his physical condition was poor, because of his excessive use of intoxicating liquors, they were just like, ah, eh, we're not going to press charges. So she's taking the heat for her alcoholic but husband who was selling her booze. <laughs> I just imagine her being so pissed at him at oh, this point. So pissed. Dead man. It gets worse though. Then later that year, Myrtle goes to California again. Um, and while she's gone, old hubby Silas got up to trouble with her rival, Madam Eva Holman. Um, and when she returned unexpectedly, she caught them both dining together and proceeded to clock Silas on the head with a ketchup bottle and cause a big scene in the cafe where they were sitting. Um, One of the like 57 bottles, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Silas agreed to leave town if the police would escort him to get his things from Myrtle's property. And the police happily obliged. Um, Myrtle then sought a divorce, stating he was a habitual drunkard and that she was the sole provider for the family. You know, I know we're reading our fair share of headlines. This one is about that whole incident um, from December 15th, 1911. And the headline reads, Silas Baker is on the way to peaceful town. <laughs> Did he die? I don't know. <laughs> His former husband, intimidated by ketchup bottle in hands of erstwhile spouse, promises the police he will hit the pike if they will help him get his clothes. <laughs> so good but he does say quote but i want someone to go to the house with me and help me get my clothes myrtle baker is some scrapper accept it from me and she'll certainly go to me right if i go to the house alone <laughs> he's terrified of myrtle i know i love how they like made these little quotes that are supposedly by him yeah i know do you think they really were are they just mm, i'm sure it was some poetic license on the part of the newspaper but i'm sure he said something <laughs> i imagine also he was wasted <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so he says quote i certainly want someone to go in the house with me to get my things then i'll leave and i'll never come back that's a bargain added captain callahan if you will agree to go and never come back i will back you up if all the fighting ladies in north america were after you it's worth the risk <laughs> bye loser <laughs> bye silas they waved goodbye at the depot never to be seen again not for long though he came back he goes back where she does. <laughs> do we know any more of myrtle's story well her story doesn't end well as badass as she was um she died two short years later in California of tuberculosis. So one of the hazards of the profession, I'd say. She had deeded her property to her sister in California right before her death, which is kind of how we know a lot about her because being a property owner um, and also deeding her property to her sister and just being in the paper all the time with these great shenanigans um, makes her one of our more well-documented madams. And like I said, her husband, Silas, apparently came back to Bellingham and just kept on being the town drunk because you keep getting stories about him after her death. Wah, wah. Our next
our next bad girl is Georgia Allen, who I um, believe Marissa had been had taken photos at, of Walla Walla State Prison Records when she visited. I, I think it was the archives in Olympia. And there weren't a ton of women in these mugshots. And in fact, one really stuck out because she was also arrested in Bellingham. Uh, and I think that was the only one that we found. And so I kind of stashed her aside as something I wanted to look into later. I just want to talk about her mugshot. This is in 1912. I mean, you could tell she's probably not wealthy or fancy, but she's got these little like spectacles on a chain. And, you know, at my first glance, I was like, oh, like she looks like a librarian or something. But then you read the stats that accompany, you know, her intake information. She has an alias for one. That's interesting. She's only 19 years old. Her alias is Gypsy Cameron. But uh, she was born and native to Canada, um, and her crime was aiding prisoner to escape. Uh, so this is what I love. She has a red and blue tattoo of clasped hands on a heart and a wreath on her outer left bicep. And then on her outer right bicep, she has, this is all one tattoo, a U.S. flag, British Union Jack, rising sun and arrowhead. <laughs> Which I, I, I don't know. I'm like curious if is it that represents like her ethnicity or her family background or something. Because those are flags and rising sun is like Empire of Japan. Arrowhead could be, you know, some native. I don't know. I have no idea. So her crime <laughs> was attempting to smuggle guns and saws to these two dope smugglers so that they could escape from the Whatcom County Jail. And I just wanted to quickly talk about the Whatcom County Jail, because this is different than city jail that we talked about previously in the basement of Old City Hall slash the museum. So the county jail doesn't exist anymore. And it was a creepy Hogwarts looking sandstone castle of a building on G and Ellsworth Street. I have a picture of it there if you guys want to look at it. But <laughs> um, it was built about the same time, a little earlier, actually, than the, the city hall and jail. And it's where uh, Fouts Park is behind North Coast Credit Union. Yeah. So the county jail was serving the entire county. Right. So this was uh, the courthouse for the entire county and the jail and all the county administration was in this one building. Ren, do you want to read the amazing article about Georgia Allen? Yeah, gladly. Quote, one of the most daring schemes ever attempted here to secretly carry aid to prisoners in jail was halted last night when Sheriff Thomas took the precaution to search a young woman who claimed to be a sister of George Kidd upon her request to communicate with her brother and his accomplice, Paul Webster, arrested last Wednesday on the charge of smuggling opium into the United States. Hidden in the bosom of the young woman's dress were a thirty-eight caliber revolver loaded and a box of cartridges. From her stockings, the officers extracted a dozen new steel saws and a bottle of oil used in the operation of sawing steel bars. Apparently, the oil was to help permit the saws to bite the steel. The young woman, who is of prepossessing appearance, arrived Friday with a permit from the U.S. warden at Seattle and asked for permission to talk with her brother. Permission was granted and she left the jail alone. Tonight, she returned but had no permit. And before the sheriff would allow her to enter the jail, he told her she must submit to a search. She then told the officers she would defer her visit until her sister arrived. However, the search was to be made anyway. And she said, well, I have the goods all right and may as well hand them over. She then gave her name as Georgia Allen and said her home was in Vancouver, B.C. 
She was detained on charges of carrying concealed weapons and attempting to offer aid to prisoners. Okay, you guys. I'm sorry. But I just like this takes some freaking ovaries, right? Like Mm -hmm. a dozen (laughs) saws, right? So do you think she was wearing a disguise or something? Maybe maybe that's why she looked so... I know. They're like, she's really comely or whatever. She's not hot. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, she looked like Mrs. Trunchbull from Matilda. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out how big these saws are. I mean, a dozen in her stockings. I know. And not have them be like completely obviously clank, clank, clank. (laughs) I mean, maybe that's why she got caught. I don't know. I suspect, though, it was probably like less bravery and more desperation. As it would appear, she was a fan of opium, which the men were smuggling. A lot of the articles mention she was beholden to one of the men and was just returning the favor. Um, I think one of the articles said the men befriended her when she was, quote, up against it, which I think is a pretty interesting way of being like, yeah, this woman was an addict and was probably dope sick. So these guys, though, had they had like more than a thousand dollars worth of opium in their possession when they were arrested. And they were believed to be part of some kind of organized gang. And because they were federal prisoners because of crossing borders and smuggling, uh, she was facing a pretty steep situation here. And it was said that she maintained an air of indifference during the proceedings until the sentence of one to ten years was passed when she collapsed. So George Kidd, who I think it was the one that she said was her brother, but was not at all. He was sentenced to eight months, got out in six. And Webster, I think, had prior convictions. So he was sentenced to two years and like $500 fine. And both of those guys served at McNeil Island, the federal penitentiary. And I'm not exactly sure why Georgia got sent to Walla Walla instead, since they were both officially men's prisons. Even though from accounts I've read at the time, there were maybe four or five women at a time around the time at Walla Walla. And they kept them segregated. But again, it was like makeshift quarters and they really had nowhere to go but their cells. Like they couldn't circulate in the buildings or in the yards because that was all the domain of the male prisoners and you know, parading women around would just cause a fucking riot. Excuse my French. They also didn't have uniforms. They just had to wear whatever they came with. So it's just kind of an interesting situation. Yeah. So what what happened to Georgia Allen? Unfortunately, I don't know. I am currently, again, waiting on an archives request to see if I can find out if and when she was released. So I promise I will update if and when I find out anything else about Georgia Allen. But that's all I know for now. Yeah, for sure. That's rough. This is all pretty rough. Yeah. I think about, you know, all these women were leading like hard lives and struggling probably with addiction and related afflictions such as TB with Myrtle Baker. But at the same time, they were, you know, really kind of like exhibiting some agency in the ways they had taken control of their lives or were trying to take control you know, in ways that were maybe more commonly accepted or attributed to men. So, you know, they were doing their thing. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe a time where maybe agency for women was taken a little bit harsher, I guess, or definitely giving given less agency. Do we see any more examples of that in the Bellingham history books? Yes. And we have another story um, about a woman criminal, quote unquote, who was basically um, criminalized for being a woman who was also a barber. Oh, God. (laughs) Because, yeah, 
<laughs> touching touching men and being close to men in this lathering kind of situation was clearly mm. well so we'll see you all next week for our triple x rated barber episode <laughs> more female trouble on the way <laughs> all right see you next week for more bad town All right, let's wrap things up with our final and favorite segment, Local Treasures. We do a roundtable sharing of something we ate, drank, or otherwise consumed recently that fills us with local pride. What's your pick, Annika? Well, this week, Maria and I went to Laura Keat, where we got a great spot outside. They have they are really well equipped to have everyone outside during this pandemic. And I ordered their curried butternut squash soup and it was spicy and fantastic. I also have to shout out their taro chips, which I needed oh. to order more of because they were so addictive. Yeah. yeah yes. The so drinks good. at Food at Lorikeet are really good. Don't miss mm -hmm. out. Um, my pick this week is some takeout from Yungane that I got. I really love their kimchi jalapeno poppers. I think they're super fun, spicy, and delicious, and great snack food with beer. And their kimchi pancake, which is giant and really good leftover because you can just throw it in a pan to heat it up. And I always make sure to get a bottle of soju whenever I'm there, which is a Korean uh, spirit, kind of like halfway between spirit and wine. It's sweet and it goes down easy and it makes me smile every time I have it. Mm. All right. I think that about wraps things up. Let us know what your local treasures are on our social media. Annika, what should we expect to learn about next week? Next week, we are learning about Bellingham's baddest old-timey lady barber, whose only actual crime was being a lady and a barber. The horror. So remember to like and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can check out our website at cityofthesubdued.com. And you can also support the City of Subdued podcast and support local radio by tuning in to KMRE at 102.3 FM every Thursday night at 10 p.m. to listen to Bad Town. Or you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. And a very special thank you to Marissa, Colby, and Ren from The Good Time Girls for being incredible season two co-hosts and for their incredible research. You can find them at bellinghistory.com as well as Facebook and Instagram. We also want to thank Francisco D'Andrea for our intro and outro music, The Criminals Jazz Band. And lastly, thank you to Maria and myself for doing the editing. With that, I say to you, Bellingham, so long. A little more subdued, Maria. See you next week. So, um, I have an update on Georgia Allen. I want to give a shout out to Jewel Lawrence Dunn of the Washington State Archives Southwest Regional Branch for getting to me some more information on this prisoner at the Walla Walla State Penitentiary. So, what I was wanting to find out was, was Georgia Allen um, released, and if she was, when, and what were the circumstances? Uh, and it turns out it looks like she was paroled to her mother, Mrs. D. McDonald, in um, Kitsilano, Vancouver, British Columbia. 
And according to one of the letters in the documents I received, it said, I understand that your honorable board will meet, um, and I recommend that Georgia Allen be favorably considered for an unconditional pardon and be permitted to go to her mother. I have carefully investigated the girl's past life and her parentage and find that she comes from a very good class of people who are not only refined, intelligent, and educated, but are also church-going and very religious people. However, another letter says that her mother is Spanish. She is worldly and been in contact with some characters that are not all reputable, to say the least. So, I don't know, take that what you will. We're just going off the documents we have. Um, what was interesting to me, though, was in the parole documents, they required her to write, um, you know, what she'd been doing, how she was she was employed, and they further asked how she spent her evenings, um, which she said she had mostly uh, repeatedly wrote. She had been reading, writing, visiting friends, going to church, and at home. Um, as for work, she had mostly done house cleaning. Um, and they further also asked, interestingly, what books, magazines, or papers she had read, uh, which she listed as An Eye for an Eye, The Works of Shakespeare, The Man Who Was Guilty, Old Lace and Lavender, Daily Papers, and Lord Byron's Poems, as well as Cosmopolitan Magazine and Tennyson. So that's what we have on Georgia Allen. Uh, I do not have any, this documents didn't really provide any m much more information about that led me to her ultimate demise. I'm not sure if she remarried, moved on, what happened to her. I'm still not certain who her parents were, as this only gives me some brief sort of, um, you know, uh, um, an initial and a last name and not a lot much more to go on than that. So we're kind of not much further in what we know about what happened to Georgia Allen, although um, we know she liked to read Lord Byron and Cosmopolitan Magazine and Tennyson and the works of Shakespeare, or at least she said she did. <laughs> 